Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we're featuring another major exhibition that has been temporarily, we hope, shuttered because of the COVID-19 pandemic. As you may remember from previous shows, we've decided that exhibitions such as this one are still worth spotlighting. Curators in museums did the research, got the loans, wrote the books, and have presented these exhibitions. Sure, they're closed for the moment, but the catalogs are still available. And besides, we think and hope the exhibitions we've been featuring will be back soon. My guest this week is Eleanor Jones Harvey. She's the curator of Alexander von Humboldt in the United States, Art, Nature, and Culture, at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington. The exhibition examines the impacts of Humboldt's six-week visit to the United States in 1804 and how his influence extended into American art, science, literature, diplomacy, and more. This is particularly fascinating, and Sam deserves special credit for highlighting it. Because art history is a siloed discipline and because art museums are built around art and not necessarily art-related presentations, stories such as this are rarely told and shown. In reality, 19th century American art worked as Humboldt in the United States shows it, as a discipline and practice closely related to science, to poetry, and so on. The Smithsonian American Art Museum is temporarily closed due to the pandemic. It has not yet announced a date through which the show will be extended. The fantastic exhibition catalog was published by Princeton University Press. Amazon offers it for $63. Early in the pandemic, I spent several nights curled up with it. It's It's a really good read. Before we get to my guest, a special thanks to those of you who have helped push us up over 300 reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Really helps new people find the show. If you have a chance, please give us a five-star rating and even a review. Eleanor Jones Harvey, after the break. Around the world, art museums, as community gathering sites, are making difficult decisions in the face of COVID-19. In this new two-part episode of the Getty's Art and Ideas podcast, President Jim Cuno gathers six U.S. museum directors for a candid discussion of the pandemic's effect on their museums. These insightful conversations address a wide range of topics, from the logistical challenges of how to reopen to the role of museums in society. Part one features Max Holein of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Kaywin Feldman of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and James Rondo of the Art Institute of Chicago. In part two, hear from Matthew Teitelbaum of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Anne Philbin of the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, and Timothy Potts of the J. Paul Getty Museum. The Art and Ideas podcast can be found now on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Music. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Ebony G. Patterson, While the Dew is Still on the Roses, featuring the work of artist Ebony G. Patterson, born in Jamaica in 1981. This is the most significant exhibition of the artist's work to date, presented within a new installation environment that evokes a night garden. This exhibition will be on view at the Nasher Museum when it is safe to reopen. The museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the art press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Did you know that you can explore the Hammer Museum's exhibitions and programs from the comfort of your home? Watch hundreds of videos, 
from an extraordinary array of programs, from political forums and panels to artist talks and literary readings. Or browse the Hammer's digital archives for images, essays, and research materials related to exhibitions and collections. Visit hammer.ucla.edu for details. Hammer Museum, free for good. And we're back. Eleanor Harvey, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's good to be here again. Before we get 34-year-old Alexander von Humboldt to America, where upon arrival, he pretty much waltzed right into a series of meetings and dinners with the president of the country. Who was he and how did he come to be in the Americas at the end of the 18th century and at the very beginning of the 19th? Alexander von Humboldt was a Prussian naturalist who came from an upper middle class family. He had a great education, but he was restless to travel. And although his mother preferred him to be either a banker or they settled on a mining engineer, he had met Georg Forster, who traveled with Captain James Cook on his second voyage and really wanted to see the world. And so after his mother died and he came into a fortune, Humboldt decided to dedicate his life to traveling as far as he could, amassing as much information as he could about natural history so that he could expand on his emergent idea that all of nature operated as one planetary ecosystem, that if he understood the relationships between things, that we would come out with a better understanding of our planet as a whole. Because Napoleon was in the middle of uh, European conquests, a lot of the natural avenues for Humboldt were shut down. Napoleon had invaded Egypt. He had invaded Italy. He had gone down the Iberian Peninsula. And so what happens to Humboldt is is that he ends up in Spain, where he gets an audience with the Spanish king and asks if he can have access to the colonies in the Americas. Normally, those are cut off from all European travelers as a matter of national security. But Humboldt had a tantalizing offer for the king. He said, I'm a mining engineer. I will bring you back information about geography. I will draw maps. I will do economic studies. I will tell you where the extraction possibilities are. And oh, by the way, I will pay for all of it myself. And the Spanish king relented and said, knock yourself out. So in 1799, Humboldt and a French botanist, Aimé Bonpland, set off for Venezuela and will spend the next four years crisscrossing Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru, spend a year in Mexico. And then as they are pulling together all of their materials in Cuba and waiting for a Spanish frigate to take them back to France, the assistant consul ends up striking up a conversation with Humboldt, and Humboldt's quite the talker. And he realizes that Humboldt is carrying a map of North America that he has created in the Spanish archives, and that this would be immensely helpful to Jefferson, who has just completed the Louisiana Purchase, but knows nothing about what exists between, say, modern-day Louisiana and modern-day Texas and the American Southwest. And so he convinces Humboldt. He says, look, you know, you, you've admired American democracy. You've read Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. You want to meet the man. He's just up the coast. When are you ever going to be closer? And convinces Humboldt to take the detour to Philadelphia and then make the trip to Washington in order to meet Thomas Jefferson and Vincent Gray hopes to share that map. So Humboldt's first stop in the United States is, as you mentioned, Philadelphia, where he quickly, very quickly, enters the orbit of the Peel family. Before we get to the Peels, how did Humboldt 
know how to network his way into Philadelphia and toward the Peels. What happened is that when Vincent Gray watched Humboldt set sail for Philadelphia, he immediately fired off a letter to his boss, Secretary of State James Madison, and he says, this guy is coming. He is a respected naturalist. He's carrying a map. Please be nice to him. And so the word had gotten up to Philadelphia through the American Philosophical Society that Humboldt was coming. Of all of the people in the United States, it is the members of the APS who would have known who Humboldt was. They already had some of his early publications on their shelves. A number of them were in touch with Humboldt's mentors in Göttingen, who were honorary members of the APS. And so the stage was really set. And I think that when Peel volunteered to go rescue Humboldt out of quarantine off the docks of Philadelphia, it was partly because as both a naturalist and a scientist and a friend of Jefferson's that I think he felt this was an unparalleled opportunity to meet this man and to be his his squire about town. And it is a job that he went into with relish. Charles Wilson Peel was the patriarch of the first family of art, at least, in, in the mid-Atlantic region. So why was Charles Wilson Peale so interested in Humboldt? And indeed, what did he have to to kind of offer Humboldt? What he had to offer Humboldt was two things. As a patriot, he had served with George Washington in the Revolutionary War. As a scientist, he was a fellow member of the APS, which Thomas Jefferson still maintained the presidency of, even after becoming president of uh, the entire country. And as an artist and as the proprietor of one of the first museums in the United States, Peel believed deep down that art and natural history were the basis of a civics lesson for Americans, a way of understanding democracy by understanding and taking pride in your country and its assets, both intellectual assets, scientific assets, natural history assets, and the works of art that would help promote a sense of cultural identity. And so he's got a lot of reasons for wanting to meet Humboldt. And so My guess is that one of the things he's really interested in is being able to take Humboldt to his museum, his world in miniature, because that is really the natural corollary to what Humboldt is trying to do writ large by amassing information about the entire planet. What Peel is doing is a microcosm of that in trying to help people understand America. So what does the shared interest Peel and Humboldt had in each other? Tell us about the proximity of art to science and science to art in early 19th century Europe and, starting about now, in America. What seems abundantly clear from Humboldt's work is that it's not just the data, it's the visualization of the data that really matters. And it's the idea that you need to be able to quite literally paint a picture in imagery as well as be able to then write up a compelling story behind it. And so for Humboldt, who illustrates his own journals and will supervise every single engraving that comes out of his 36 books, this is a man who is dedicated to making sure that he is equally clear in print and in visual images. For Peel, I think it's a matter of understanding that Art is, to him, one of the most important professions that you can have. It it may seem strange in 21st century America to think about art as a pinnacle achievement rather than as a luxury, but I think the truth of the matter is that he really believed that that was his most eloquent teaching tool, is what he could show you visually rather than what he ended up writing about it. Part of it is, you know, 
Peel is not necessarily the world's most literate person. His spelling is extraordinarily creative, but he is maniacally interested in teaching and conveying information. Humboldt is using his books, his lectures, social events, the Paris salons as an opportunity to really spread that knowledge. And increase in diffusion of knowledge is kind of an 18th century catchphrase, and Humboldt uses it quite a bit. But it's not just the motto of the Smithsonian. It really talks to an Enlightenment era worldview that the more you know, the better equipped you are to take your place in the world and handle what happens. Everybody wins as thinking of the present. What are the major artworks that come out of the time Peel and Humboldt spent with each other? The first piece is something that literally comes out during that time, which is the portrait of Humboldt that Peel paints. He's come out of retirement. He's in his 60s. He's kind of considered himself, you know, I'm getting too old for this. And he says, you know, James is going to get me the paints and he's going to set me up in this room. And oh my God, I've got three days and I don't know whether I can do this. And he's so happy with the portrait that first of all, he puts it in his museum. So Humboldt becomes one of the luminaries along with our leading statesmen and scientists as though we have literally adopted him in 1804. The second thing that happens is Peel decides, well, you know, there's still life in the old man yet. And so he begins working on what he thinks of as his last big history painting, which is the exhumation of the Mastodon, which is simultaneously a landscape, a history painting, and a civics lesson about, I think, quite literally excavating America's identity in the form of Mastodon bones out of what looks like primordial ooze in a marl pit in upstate New York, very close to where George Washington had his final headquarters during the Revolutionary War, so that it becomes a way of understanding the the literal creation myth of the United States using the skeleton of a mammoth, or now we call it a mastodon, as a kind of a, an index or the scale and scope of America's cultural ambitions. From there, Peel will continue to let the kids run the museum, but at the end of his life, or at least closer to the end of his life in 1822, he will come out of retirement a second time to paint the artist in his museum, which is his version of what I would think of as what Humboldt will do in Cosmos, kind of a summation of all aspects of his life as a way of, again, positioning himself at the apex of this triangle that brings together art, culture, and history as a civics lesson for Americans. We will come back to Cosmos when we discuss Frederick Church in a minute. But while we're still in this early American moment, is part of your argument here that Humboldt is responsible for, or at least most responsible for, for how American culture, poetry, art, fiction, and so on, embraced wilderness and later landscape as the defining elements of, of the national culture? I think that he is an extraordinarily influential voice in steering us down that path. I think there's no question that if you go back and read Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, he has tentatively set us down the path of countering all of the European criticisms coming out of Buffon and Depot and the Abbe Reynal, who are all dismissive of the Americas in general as being less than, weaker than, and a physically degenerate climate for culture and for humankind, he's basically saying, 
but we have the mammoth and we have natural bridge and we have this output. And he uses his home state as a test case for how those arguments are completely wrong. What Humboldt will do is arrive in 1804 and essentially say, oh, you're not just absolutely wrong in Europe. It's like, I can take Jefferson's argument and take you one step further, having just spent four years in South America and Mexico. It's as though he were saying to Jefferson, between you and me, we've got these guys. Let's go get them. And so I think what he does is it's not so much that he redirects us to embracing nature. He essentially reaffirms Jefferson's instincts to use nature and the two of them together essentially push harder and faster and further down that path so that it becomes a real American ethos. But I actually think Jefferson is probably the one who should be given a good deal of credit for having started it. I think it's Humboldt who, with his increasingly influential imprimatur, gives it the kind of rocket boost that it needs to take hold. As you mentioned, Jefferson was willing to meet with Humboldt in part because Humboldt had an important key to a new region of the country, one that the borders of which that the United States had not yet finally negotiated. What impact did Humboldt have on how the United States would investigate this new territory of the Louisiana Purchase and indeed on the lands to the west of it? Humboldt was a big proponent of exploration and investigation as part of this insatiable desire to know the entire world. He also, I think, was rather pragmatic about the fact that he understood that exploration would mean exploitation. I don't think he was a purist on that front. And I think that he understood that that was a necessary evil that was part of the cost of doing business. He was a mining engineer. He was a mining engineer, and he was interested in what could be extracted. When we discover gold out west, he wants to know how big is the biggest nugget? Where did you find it? You know, what was the matrix? I mean, he's really interested in what's here in terms of landmarks, but also in terms of the mineral wealth of the continent. So he's crushed that Lewis and Clark had left just by a matter of weeks before Humboldt got there. Although I'm sure Humboldt's companions at that point were like, oh, thank God we finally can go home. Because I think Humboldt probably would have attached himself to Lewis and Clark had that been an option. He was already worried that the two had not taken along the best and most sophisticated measuring equipment, that his own understanding of how to use the 42 instruments that he had hauled across South America would have made him an asset to that trip. But it's very clear that what he leaves Jefferson with is the belief that what they come back with is the beginning of establishing the American imprimatur on the global stage, that we will make our impact based on what is already here, not necessarily what we build on it. And so the European history of cathedrals and castles and architectural landmarks is not something we're in a position to compete with. But when it comes to Natural Bridge and Niagara Falls and then the great Americans, you know, Midwest, the, the Great Plains, the Rockies, and eventually Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon, we will escalate the idea that our sense of identity and worth will come through natural landmarks and through what we discover as we move west. The actual impact will be that every single explorer after Lewis and Clark will take Humboldt's books and maps with them. 
Stephen Long actually has his books on the Western Engineer. He is carrying a copy of Humboldt's map. James Wilkinson, in his abortive attempt to carve off a part of the Louisiana Purchase with Aaron Burr and set up a new country, pirates a copy of Humboldt's map, gives it to Zebulon Pike, so that when Pike is out in the Southwest, that he's got a little bit more intelligence about what's going on there. And so what Humboldt does geopolitically is give Jefferson and Madison a leg up on the negotiations with Spain, but it also gives every American explorer a leg up on not only what to expect out west of the Appalachian Mountains, but how to record that, how to follow in Humboldt's footsteps and be accurate in your cartographic measurements and be able to take that information and the specimens that you bring back and make that part of a global understanding of the planet that we live on. These post-Humboldt expeditions into America's various Wests all prioritize the creation of visual material. Everything from sketches of landscape and landscape features to map making to botanical illustration when these expeditions return to the East Coast and they want to catalog what they, what they found and what's there. Does all of that descend from Humboldt? I think a lot of it does, actually, because Lewis and Clark, it's not a visual voyage except for the maps. And so there is no sense that they're supposed to be bringing back sketchbooks full of things. They bring back word pictures, but they don't bring back, they bring back specimens, but they don't bring back images. And that really does start with Stephen Long taking Titian Ramsey Peel and Samuel Seymour out with him. So I do think that that notion that what you produce should be visual as well as literary does come out of that Humboldtian paradigm. In these years, and, and, and indeed as these decades increase across the 19th century, America is obsessed with how it stood in relation to Europe and wanting to measure up. And this continues well into the Gilded Age, I think you could say. Humboldt, as you mentioned earlier, thought America was the equal of Europe in many natural ways, which was certainly not something Americans had ever heard from a European at that point. What are some of the ways in which artists picked up on Humboldt's assessment and extended it or ran with it or built upon it? I think that the way artists picked up on it was the understanding that the visual record really did matter, that it wasn't just the province of upper class patrons, but that this democratizes art in a way that means that your audience is broadened beyond the fine arts world into the rank and file of K through 12 education, of the exploring community, the scientific community, because what you're bringing back is visual evidence of what we are. It's as though you are making the continent visually available to people regardless of their state of literacy. And I think that you know, for a lot of people, particularly pre-photography, but even post-photography, it's also about proof. It's about veracity that these things do exist and that you're not just taking someone's word for it, 
but there's actually a picture that goes along with it. And so I think that if you look at the Stephen Long expedition in particular, its scientific results were somewhat mixed, but there's no question that the published record of that expedition with its illustrations was immensely influential. Fenimore Cooper and Washington Irving, you know, sitting in Paris with Humboldt, they are all reading the Long Expedition Report, and that is informing Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales. It is inspiring Irving to go west on a tour of the prairies when he gets back to the United States. It sparks Irving spending time with Humboldt trying to figure out why we're called America instead of Columbia and figuring out that it starts with Waldsee Mueller's map. It's a desire, I think, for Americans to really understand that they have a past and that that past is not necessarily architectural or cultural, but that it is grounded in nature. One of the first and biggest ways that comes together in the book, this idea of veracity, of showing people what's really out there, especially given that Easterners, Easterners didn't really have much of a context for much of the Trans-Rockies West, bringing that together with science, with, with anti-slavery. Humboldt was a furious abolitionist. There's much about that in the catalog over which we're kind of skipping at the moment science, landscape, politics, that most comes together first in the book in, in the work of Carlton Watkins at Yosemite in 1861, when Watkins brings together all of that in a remarkable series of pictures that seeks to respond, or that does respond, to the West's wavering unionism and to the ongoing civil war. What are some of the ways in which Watkins, who never met Humboldt, of course, we're talking many decades later, but, but probably knew of his work, what are some of the ways Watkins extends Humboldt's interests into the furthest West? First of all, no, he would not have known Humboldt, but I think that <laughs> by by association, he could not have avoided knowing about Humboldt. All of the San Francisco abolitionist community, the, the Fremonts, Star King, Emerson, they're all so deeply vested in Humboldt that it would have been an act of will not to have been sucked into that. I do think that what Carlton Watkins is doing is understanding that the power of American natural monuments as a metaphor for America's cultural identity and its ambitions both now and for the future was well established by the time that Watkins develops his mammoth plate camera. I've always found it kind of fun that while Charles Wilson Peale was obsessed about an actual mammoth and mammoth scale being something of an emblem for us in the 18 aughts, that Watkins's own camera is the mammoth plate camera carrying the metaphor a bit further. But I do think what Watkins is doing is recognizing that there are iconic landscapes out west that are the same order of magnitude as Natural Bridge or Niagara Falls that have the capacity to become a touchstone for the identification of, in this case, an entire state or, for that matter, the entire further West, American West. And so I think that what you've got is a building on that ethos that landscape has the capacity to send a signal about a country's cultural priorities and ambitions. And that what he does is does for California and Yosemite what Frederick Church had done for Niagara and what a number of other artists had done for the Rockies. I think the other thing at 
play there in terms of, of Humboldt is Watkins is, with one exception about whom we're going to talk in a moment, is the 19th century American artist most interested in science and closest to scientists. Watkins makes work for a series of Eastern botanists and geologists over several decades that is Humboldtian in its specificity, labor, and goals. And that one other artist is, is Frederick Church. And to a significant extent, your entire Humboldt in the United States project builds to Church. How and when do you think Church discovered Humboldt's work? And do you have a guess or knowledge, but more likely a guess, of what work of Humboldt's that would have been? I believe that Frederick Church grew up at a moment where Humboldt had already become the ubiquitous expert on so many different things. Church was born in 1826. By 1829, Elmira Lincoln Phelps's book, American Botany, the frontispiece is an adaptation of Humboldt's plant geography map, and she teaches a Humboldtian view of botany. That book will go through multiple iterations for the next three decades. When Louis Agassiz delivers the centennial eulogy address on Humboldt in 1869, he makes a comment that really struck me forcibly when he says, every school child in America has Humboldt as his teacher. They just don't know their teacher's name. And so to me, what that says is that the permeability, the, the the deep saturation of Humboldt's influence meant that even if you weren't reading Humboldt directly, you were essentially reading Humboldt. For Church, given the way that he grew up, by the time that he is reading, Humboldt is a ubiquitous force in America. There is no question in my mind that by the time he is working with Thomas Cole in 1846, Humboldt's cosmos is out. It is the single most significant book that links art and culture that has ever been written. Fully one-third of the second volume of Cosmos is advice to landscape painters. And that is where Humboldt's ethos, if you will, is that artists need to know enough science to be able to do justice to their material and that scientists need to remember that there is an aesthetic joy in being in nature that is as important as any of their experiments. And Church is really, to the artistic side of that, what Humboldt is to the scientific side. It is like they are two sides of that coin. I cannot imagine Church developing as an artist not having been inspired by Humboldt's words to go out and study directly from nature, make those color sketches, amass that portfolio, build your travel notes. And in fact, even Thomas Cole says, you know, he's better at sketching out of doors than I am. He's got the finest eye for drawing in the world. That's the kind of approach that Humboldt was angling for, is someone who would be an extraordinary draftsman, an extraordinary visionary, and someone whose enthusiasm for science kept pace with his abilities as an artist. Do I have proof of when he started reading Humboldt? No, I don't. But given the publication dates on Humboldt and the fact that Cosmos came out in English, volumes one and two, by the time Church is working with Thomas Cole, I have to believe that that's where it starts. And there's, I think, an 1849 edition and maybe two 1849 editions of Humboldt's Cosmos in Church's library to this day. 
That is exactly right. And in one of them, Church has put a line along in pencil along a passage that talks about the nature of skies and why it's important to catch the character of a sky, that it's different over different types of places, which, of course, is exactly what you would expect to find reverberating around the head of a Hudson River School landscape painter in America. I'm also reminded that as late as the 1880s, Church writes a letter in which he expresses his frustration saying, I wish science would take a 10-year holiday so that I could catch up. This is a man for whom Humboldt is not a flash in the pan. He really is a guiding influence. And I think that although Cosmos clearly sets the tone for Church's artistic career, it's also equally clear that what inspires Church to go to South America is reading Views of the Cordilleras. And that's one of Humboldt's earliest books. It comes out first in 1814 in English, and that that really is his Baedeker. That is his guidebook for taking Cyrus Field through the same four countries in South America that Humboldt had visited almost 50 years earlier. So speaking of skies, and before we get Humboldt into South America, there's a great Instagram account by the artist and photographer Barbara Bosworth that kind of extends that interest into the present. It's Barbara Bosworth weather, all one word. If you're listening, you'll you'll enjoy it, especially in the middle of a pandemic, as I do. Before we get Humboldt into South America, let's get Church into Virginia. A pretty early example of Humboldt and Church having interest in the same terrain, as it were, was in central Virginia on land owned by Thomas Jefferson. So in the early 50s, 50, 51, Church and his collector and patron, Cyrus Field, who, who you just mentioned, visited a landscape feature in the foothills of the Appalachians called Natural Bridge. How and in what context did Natural Bridge first become renowned? And what is the great story of Church's painting of it that involves Cyrus Field and a rock? <laughs> in the 1750s, George Washington was a young surveyor, and Lord Rockbridge, who gave the name to Rockbridge County, where Natural Bridge is, asked Washington to do some surveying. And so Natural Bridge was one of the landmarks that Washington ended up surveying. The story has it that Washington clambered up the left-hand side of the arch to about, oh, 29 feet off the ground and carved his initials GW into the rock. And then when Thomas Jefferson owned the land and Natural Bridge, there was a free man of color named Patrick Henry who was stationed there as an absentee landlord who also gave tours and presumably pointed out those initials. As a result, this was a painting that was also central to my exhibition on the Civil War and American art back in 2012. Works of art being delightfully multivalent, the Humboldtian side of it then became really important to this exhibition because when he and Cyrus Field go to Natural Bridge together, Field is a big fan of Jefferson and George Washington. They had just paid a call to Mount Vernon. And when they get to Natural Bridge, Church will end up painting an image that shows Patrick Henry in the foreground expounding on the virtues of the bridge to a white woman who is seated at his feet. And he is pointing toward that left-hand side of the arch where Washington's initials should be. But when they were on site, Church was only sketching in pencil, and he was scribbling color notes in the margins. And Field was a little antsy about this and said, well, you know, don't you want to take some rock samples back with you? And Church is like, no, I've, I've got this. And so Church continues to sketch in pencil and write into the margins, and Field picks up a couple of rock samples, and they go home. 
Church paints the picture. He unveils it for Field. Field pops out the rocks. The rocks match in the painting and in Field's hands. And it's this Giotto-like moment of perfection that is kind of a way of saying Church has the finest memory and eye for color of any living artist. And so it's a Humboldtian moment where Church's ability to remember what it is he has seen and use his notes effectively to recreate it at home is part of the power behind the mystique of his entire artistic production. Field and Church are in Virginia in part, in all probability, because they want to see if they're compatible as travel companions before going to South America together. Why does Church want to go to South America? Is it as simple as Humboldt did it, therefore I want to as well? You know, I think actually that is one of the best questions that nobody ever really asks about Frederick Church, which is why on earth did a man who doesn't go to Europe until the 1860s, who never goes west of the Mississippi, why did he decide to go to South America? It's something that I, I have to believe that after having read Humboldt, it is a a tour that is meant to cement the affinity between the two men. I think that Church probably took confidence in making the trip because Humboldt had made it sound like it was such a magical experience. Field was clearly willing to bankroll the whole thing. And I think that the two of them together realized that this was the proof of concept trip for them. I also think that Church's burgeoning interest in the science behind landscape means that for him to really understand what Humboldt has written and the ideas that he is positing, he needs to see that specific landscape. He isn't going to be able to extrapolate it by going someplace else, because up until that point, it's really Humboldt who is drawing those inferences back and forth between one part of the globe and another. There is a famous waterfall that Humboldt visited in South America. There is a great engraving of it in his book about indigenous people in South America, and Church went there too and made drawings of it. What is that waterfall? Was Church consciously, intentionally riffing on darn near copying Humboldt's presentation of it? And then why did Church choose a totally different view for his painting of that same waterfall? It's Tecandama Falls near Bogota, Colombia. And there is no question that Church is deliberately following in Humboldt's footsteps to this particular landmark. It is as though he and Field are reading Humboldt the night before and then sallying forth into the landscape the next day. Church keeps a diary, and it is at Olana, Church's home in Hudson, New York. But in that diary, he writes about the fact that they are embarking on this adventure. And the way that Church describes it is drawn specifically from Humboldt's description of trying to figure out what's the approach. He's up at the top of the falls where he feels a totally different climate. It's hot up at the top of the falls, but at the bottom, it's a totally different microclimate. And Church points that out and then reiterates that in a letter home to a family member. Humboldt had hired six local men in order to hack away at the greenery at the base of the Bogota River so that he could make his way up to the base of the falls. What does Church do? Hire six local peons to hack away at the foliage that has built up over the last 50 years so that he can have that same experience. Church does no fewer than four detailed pencil sketches of 
Tekandama seen from the rim at the top from a distant vantage point, and then two of them as he is making his way up the Bogota River. And he's clearly trying to figure out where his vantage point is. And while Humboldt's tended to be off to one side as though he's hovering halfway up the falls, Church decided to adopt the vantage point of being on the ground, almost in the middle of the Bogota River, looking upward toward the falls. It's a much more dramatic presentation. And I think that one of the things he's trying to get across is the exhilaration, the determination, and the obstacles that he had to overcome in order to achieve that scene. Chimborazo is the great subject of Church's paintings that come from this trip. Before we get to to Chimborazo itself, can you contextualize for us how early to mid-19th century culture, so both European and American, considered stratovolcanoes? What did they represent? What did they recall or promise? There is no question that from the very beginning of Humboldt's career, one of the things he is most interested in is what makes volcanoes erupt. And when he is in South America, and he experiences his first earthquake, and he experiences volcanic eruptions, he begins to develop the idea that these are not unconnected phenomena. And he believes that volcanics actually play an important role in understanding the way the earth is formed, the way it's torn apart, that it's not just water that shapes the planet or air that shapes the planet, but that it's the forces of fire under the Earth's crust that also has an elemental impact on the the scenery that we see today. What comes out of that, though, and it's quickly transferred as a political metaphor when Humboldt returns to Europe, is the notion of a smoking volcano waiting to erupt being a metaphor for incipient revolutionary politics. Simon Bolivar will pick up the metaphor and run with it when he goes back to South America to fight for the independence of his home country of Venezuela from uh, the Spanish Empire. But it will permeate political thought about volcanoes waiting to erupt and the volcano in this sense being the people who are going to rise up and revolt against an oppressive power structure. In American politics, this will become most profoundly associated with the abolitionists who use that volcano metaphor in order to describe a country on the verge of erupting over the issue of slavery. Frederick Douglass's seminal speech, The American Apocalypse, where he talks about the fact that uh, slavery is America's moral volcano waiting to erupt, comes straight out of that Bolivar-Humboldt lineage. But it definitely becomes a really powerful metaphor for the destabilization of everything that you thought was solid and predictable underfoot. And that's the, the thing that Humboldt takes away from the experiences of earthquakes and erupting volcanoes is that everything that he thought he could count on, he now has to rethink as something that is in flux. And that is a really powerful metaphor for his life in terms of never taking for granted that something that is received wisdom is in fact the truth, that one does have to then try to understand what's really going on. For church, that volcano tends to operate the same way. It can be peacefully puffing along, minding its own business, but then there is the notion that particularly during the Civil War, that Cotopaxi, which has been puffing along peacefully, 
since 1854 in his first painting of that volcano is in violent eruption by 1862 when the entire country, the United States, is essentially on fire and coming apart at the seams. So Humboldt's interest in the inner workings of volcanoes and instability does end up feeding into probably the most powerful abolitionist metaphor in the United States. There's probably a great book and show out there in how American thinkers and especially artists looked at and considered volcanoes across the 19th century as a way of charting the development of American intellectualism and particularly in relation to politics. I mean, it, it starts with, you know, the Grand Tour and Etna and the American artists and Emerson who went there and then continues. I mean, the only American artist who does a convincing volcano before really Bierstadt's second trip to the far west in the 1870s was, of course, Carlton Watkins. Bierstadt took wax at Mount Shasta in Northern California in 63, but like pretty much everyone else, including Edward Kern, a survey artist for Fremont, pretty much failed at it. But enough about American volcanoes. Back to South America. What made Chimborazo the great subject of this trip for church? Why was he so interested in so much Chimborazo? Because by the time Church goes to South America, Chimborazo is affectionately referred to as Humboldt's Mountain. It was considered in the day to be the tallest mountain on the earth, and we can get into the semantics of the Himalayas and how high things are off the equator. But the point was, at the time, Chimborazo was considered to be the tallest peak on earth. The French climber Condamine had made it a substantial distance up the side of Chimborazo 30 years before Humboldt got there, and Humboldt was thrilled to be able to make it very close to the summit. There was a final crevasse that they simply could not pass, but he made it to 19,413 feet. It was a climbing record that stood for 30 years. And what Humboldt found when he was climbing Chimborazo was he attributes to that arduous climb and descent the crystallization of his prevailing understanding of the unity of nature. He is watching the way that different plant types give way to others as he's literally going from a tropical environment at the base of the mountain up to an Arctic environment at the top. And Humboldt comes down and realizes that as he has gone vertical up Chimborazo, he could also have gone latitudinally from the equator to the North Pole or the South Pole and achieved the same kind of shift and progression in biodiversity. And that becomes the XY axis for the rest of Humboldt's career in being able to correlate what grows at certain altitudes and under certain climactic conditions going up a mountain, but also moving northward toward the poles. And what Church comes away with is the realization that this is the mountain climbing experience that was the aha moment for Humboldt. And I think he is looking to see if he will have something similar to that. Church also makes paintings of other South American volcanoes, Cotopaxi, which you mentioned, Cayambe. Do the different volcanoes mean different things for him, or are, or is he just having a good time with some volcanoes? I think he's 
picking up on Humboldt's assignment of values to each of them. Cotopaxi is the perfect cinder cone. Cayambe is the most beautiful volcano. Chimborazo is the tallest volcano. Sangui is the most unpredictable volcano. And so each one of them has a personality. And I think that church is trying to capture that. And I think, I think that maybe comes across best in the oil sketches, many of which are in the show and in the book. They're at the Cooper Hewitt. We'll have a bunch of them on, on manpodcast.com. Church's most famous painting then and now is, of course, the Great Niagara, formerly at the Corcoran, now assumed into the National Gallery's collection. What makes it a Humboldtian painting? What makes it a Humboldtian painting is that synergy between science and art. It comes out of a critical jab that Church receives the year before when he debuts Tekendama Falls. And the critic says Church shouldn't paint water because he can't. And I think at that point, Church rallies to that criticism, goes to Niagara Falls, sketches over a hundred works in pencil and in oil, resolutely looking to capture the dance and play of moving water. It's almost a Leonardesque kind of commitment to understanding how water operates, both in terms of science and in art. He goes home, he paints Niagara Falls, which is as close to a panorama as Church is ever going to get, which is a format that Humboldt has written, favors the, the kind of large-scale impressive landscape paintings. He paints it as a tour de force combination of science and art with a lot of national pride thrown into it, and then debuts it and quite literally leaves almost the next day for South America for this four-month intensive trip to Chimborazo as though what he is doing is saying, okay, I've answered your criticism, I have painted a magnum opus, and now I'm off to go better it one more time. Is Heart of the Andes the painting at the Met that Church paints in the very, very late antebellum years, 1859, a summary of his address of Humboldt, kind of a magnum opus type summary? It is. It it really is his visual articulation of Humboldt's cosmos, but more importantly to me, he's using Humboldt's plant geography map, the Naturgemalda, as his template, not just in terms of the idea that it's centered on Chimborazo and that it, it basically contains all of the atmospheric and biodiverse information that runs from sea level all the way up to the top of, of the Andean peaks. But what he's really doing is he's using it as a visual template for understanding how that map became the infographic that summarizes Humboldt's idea of the unity of nature. It is his first pictorial proof of concept for that animating idea that will really characterize the rest of, of Humboldt's career. So for Church, it's almost as though that's the color sketch that he uses that helps him set the composition determine the parameters going literally from the Amazon River Basin all the way up to the Andean summit, and to incorporate the same density of information that Humboldt packed into that one visual 
piece. And so I think it is a deliberate homage. I think it is a deliberate summation. The fact that he was working with his dealer to create the work and send it to Berlin. He had Bayard Taylor, who had met Humboldt, write a letter for him in German to Humboldt saying, you know, Frederick Church is the artist that you longed for. He went to follow in your footsteps. This is the painting he wants you to see means that it was absolutely deliberate and it must have been crushing to church to realize that you know days after he puts this painting on view he is working out the travel arrangements he's deciding according to one press report to travel with the picture to berlin to meet humboldt and then finds out that humboldt had died 10 days earlier and the new york times basically mourns on church's behalf and says it's like he lost a good friend even though the two men had never met so you know to me what church had in mind for that painting was something truly gargantuan by that time the imprimatur of having humboldt say nice things about you could really boost your career and i can imagine that church at this point in his life having you know achieved the pinnacle of success that he had with niagara was being asked to then better it and to continue to improve on that, that this was the painting that if it came with a letter from Humboldt basically extolling what he had done is exactly the kind of next step that he would envision for his career. In 1848, Church had made a painting called, or that we know today anyway, as to the memory of Cole. He made it after Thomas Cole's death. It features a, a spotlit cross in the foreground landscape, a, a suggestion of, of, of Cole's grave, a memorial painting. There is a cross in the lower left-hand side of To the Heart of the Andes. Is that for Humboldt? Did Church add it? I doubt it. Humboldt was as close to an avowed atheist as you're going to find extolling spirituality in nature. And I suspect that may have been one of the reasons that Thomas Cole himself never overtly embraces Humboldt. There are a lot of people who are deeply uncomfortable with the fact that Humboldt never in any of his works mentions a creator or a higher intelligence. It is all about a natural ethos and a sense of spirit resonant in nature without attaching it to God. Church is a congregationalist. He's a deeply devout man, and his last name provides the great visual pun for all of that. And so my guess is that the cross in the heart of the Andes is not so much for Humboldt as much as it is, I think, for the understanding that in America, landscape painting takes that Humboldtian ethos and then uses it as a spiritual pilgrimage as well as a cultural one. Eleanor Harvey, thank you. You're welcome, Tyler. It's been always a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.